Good morning. So you like that? Did you like that video? So you really liked it. Did you get the point? You're following the message? <laughs> We're going to reopen children's ministries here. That's our uh, hope uh, in a few weeks on September 13th, Sunday the 13th. And of course, we have two services on Sunday these days, 10 o'clock and 1130. We need about 30 people minimum in each of those hours. And so we need folks to volunteer to sign up and help. Um, you'll have to assess your own uh, risk tolerance, of course, with uh, hanging out with kids. We know that the children really aren't that much at risk. We understand the science much better now. If you're under 15 years old, I mean, the chances of you getting critically ill with COVID is very, very remote. You've got a better chance of getting hit by lightning. And so it's, it's not about the children as much as it is people who are supervising and teaching and that sort of thing. So thanks for giving that some thought and praying about that. And you can go right online to the homepage uh, on the Union Chapel website and click on go. No, grow, go. You want to go. <laughs> click on go and you can volunteer to serve. You can use the app and connect as well. And we'll be in touch with you and help you get ready for us serving in a few weeks in children's ministry. So we appreciate that very much. We've been talking about God's ability to change our story and the power that our story has. And just a reminder that no one cares about your story more than God does, and no one has the power to change your story like God does. And so we've been rehearsing these encounters that Jesus had with individuals whose lives became transformed because of that encounter. And today I want to talk about my favorite New Testament character. His name is John the Baptist. Uh, John Baptist is my favorite New Testament guy, of course, outside of Jesus. And he was a bold, brash, prophetic force of nature. And I just ad admire uh, his integrity and the influence of his life. And we we're going to talk about him. My favorite Old Testament character, if, if you're interested, is Joseph who also had a keen sense of his own sense of call and destiny and, and through thick and thin, he maintained his integrity and, and served well. And, and I admire that and I'm inspired by it. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to use as our text this morning from Luke's gospel, Luke chapter seven. I'm gonna read for us the verses 18 to 23. And we pick up the story here where John the Baptist has been imprisoned. So he's, he's, uh, he's incarcerated at this point and we pick up the story uh, from there. Custom is to stand to hear God's word. So if you're able to do that, thank you for standing. Here's verse 18. John's disciples told him about all these things, calling two of them. He sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? And when the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sickness and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. I mean, God encourage and inspire us today through his word. You may be seated. Thanks so much. 
Now, what we find here in the text we've just read is John the Baptist, he's incarcerated. He's probably been in jail now for several months, and he begins to doubt. This bold, confident, outspoken prophet, precursor prophet to Jesus Messiah is now, because of his circumstances, getting a little wobbly in his faith. Now, here's what we know. Everybody, from time to time, depending on circumstances and seasons of life, actually experience doubt, confusion, uh, a wonderment. Is God still with me? Is God still, still leading me? Is God's presence still in my life? Can I trust him to get me through this season? And so all of us from time to time encounter this. We, we see Jesus who was led into the wilderness. This is just at the beginning of his public ministry to be tempted by the devil. So he's in a literal wilderness. He's in the desert for 40 days and he's fasting. And we know that under those circumstances that you would be physically weakened and probably spiritually vulnerable. And so emotionally, he's, he's more vulnerable. And so the devil tempts him three different times. And he has to wrestle with his own doubts and his own sense of calling and God's primary purpose for his life, his mission. And, and so he wobbles a bit. So even in Jesus' life, we see that, that he feels the pressure. And all of us, in similar circumstances, if we're not feeling well physically or if there are circumstances in our personal lives that add pressure points, we, we can begin to wonder, begin to doubt. And it's true in everyone's life. Uh, let me just uh, mention this example during the Gulf War. The first Gulf War man from Jordan came to the United States to get some higher education, and he achieved a doctoral degree and then went back to his home country of Jordan and discovered that there was a move of God taking place there. And he was very excited about that. And by the way, you won't hear about the, a move of God in Iraq, in Iran, and in Syria, which are taking place right now. And we have friends who are working there or associated with people who are working for, for Christ in those nations of the world. And there is a move of God. And, and these years ago, during the first Gulf War, this Jordanian man went back to his country to discover that God was at work. He was excited about that. He came back to the States and tried to recruit some more workers and also raise money to assist in his ministry in Jordan. While they were here, he and his wife it was discovered that she was full of cancer. It was devastating news. And in order to get her the best possible medical care, they stayed in the United States. But it was confusing under the circumstances, made to wonder. And this is what he said, and I quote, it doesn't make sense. We've given our lives to Christ. We've said we want to serve you. And just as things are beginning to work, work out, all of this happens. Where is God in all of this? It's a good question, isn't it? Perhaps you've been in a season of your life where you stopped to say, Lord, why? Why this? Why me? Why now? I've been at that crossroads in my life. I know many of you have. Maybe you are in that crossroads right now. And all of us have to struggle with the questions and the confusion. We wonder, God, are you still there? Are you still present? Are you still involved? Can I trust you? This is a true story from a middle-aged couple. Their names are Max and Shirley. They're part of a blended family raising their two-year-old granddaughter. That's something that can happen in our world today. 
and they had just started attending church. They wanted to do better with their grandchildren than they did with their own children. And one day Shirley was preparing to leave on an errand and the granddaughter, two years old, slipped out of the front door unknowingly and she ran over her and killed her. So the baby was dead. And the pastor came to the house and arrived and Shirley asked the pastor, why? We've just started trying to do the right thing. We've made a choice for Christ. We're attending church. Why would God allow this to happen? It's a good question, isn't it? It's a very good question. Have you ever faced moments of doubt? I know I have. Let me just make this confession right on the front end. I have had moments of doubt in the past week. We're all under pressure, aren't we? All kinds of pressure points. There is the consequences of COVID that, that lingers. There, there is racial and social tension across the country, indeed around the world. There is political upheaval. All of these issues, this, almost this cauldron of issues that are very serious and, and, and very important, and, and, they, and they create stress points on our lives and make us wonder, what is going on? And where is God in all of it? And how does my faith relate to all of these challenges and these questions? And so I've wobbled, <laughs> I've wondered, I've been in doubt, and as I say, even in the last week. So I hope it doesn't surprise you that your pastor has doubts or disappoint you that he has doubts. But I've discovered that there are moments in all of our lives when some level of doubt creeps in. Hebrews 11, though, reminds us of this. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So we're reminded of the importance of faith. And when you stop and think about it, if you can just step back from all of your doubts and questions, even if you're experiencing those right now, just step back from that a bit and get a little different perspective. As it turns out, you'll realize, I think, that God can be trusted, that the most honorable way to relate to God is to actually place our confidence and our hope and our trust in him. Because as I say, he is absolutely trustworthy. And so without that faith, that trust, it's impossible to please him. Nevertheless, from time to time, all of us swing from faith into doubt and back again, and, and we understand that. Let me give you this one verse of scripture that will be central to our conversation today. Hebrews 11.1, 1. this is the definition of faith. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. The root there for the word assurance is I'm sure. I'm sure about the things that I hope for. I have confidence in things that I have not yet seen. That's faith. We live by faith, not by sight. We live by faith, not by circumstances. We live by faith, not by, not by pressure points that the world creates in our lives. We live by faith and we understand what it means. But it helps me to know, I don't know if this helps you, but it helps me to know that even great men and women of faith that we find in the Bible were people who lived most of their lives faithful and bold and dynamic and, and completely assured of the hope that they have in their faith. And these very same people also wobbled from time to time and experienced doubt. Now, John the Baptist is a good example of this. And I've mentioned that John Baptist is my favorite New Testament character. He was bold. He was brash. He was out there. 
He was a precursor prophet. He understood his role and he lived that role with integrity. He preached a baptism of repentance. He, he was in the wilderness. I'm a, he, he actually said this, I am a voice in the wilderness, preparing the way for Messiah Emmanuel. And he, he got it. He had the right perspective, he had the right motive. He said, there's one who's coming after me who is mightier than I am. And John had a big following. I mean, large groups of people would follow him and listen to him preach. He was, he was, ve- he was very powerful. He's like a force of nature. And, and so here he is, and people admired him for it, and they listened to him. And he said, there's one who's coming after me who is mightier than I am. And I'm, in fact, I'm not even fit to stoop down and untie his sandals. And so he kept pointing people to Jesus. And one day with a great crowd around him, Jesus is now on the horizon, and he points to him and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So he was right on point. He was right on message. In fact, uh, John was actually filled with the Holy Spirit before he was born. We, we know that Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, were first cousins, which made John and Jesus second cousins. And Mary, while she was pregnant with Jesus, went to Elizabeth's house when she was carrying John Baptist And when Mary entered her house and gave her a verbal greeting, greetings to you, cousin Elizabeth, the Holy Spirit came upon Elizabeth and the baby leapt within her womb. And so the the power of God falls on Elizabeth and John Baptist is filled with the Holy Spirit in utero. and, And Elizabeth calls out in a loud voice. She immediately prophesies to Mary and says, blessed are you among women and blessed is that baby you carry. This is a very powerful moment. So when John was born, I mean, he was ready to go. This guy, this guy was full of God and full of a sense of purpose in his life. And, and so he was, he was out there. And, and yet, there came a time in his life when he began to waver. He began to doubt. Now, let me tell you what the occasion was for this doubting. John had been thrown into prison. And the guy who threw him in prison was a guy named Herod. Now, Herod's father was Herod the Great. This is a name that we see uh, when Jesus is born, Herod the Great. But now he has died, and he has four sons. And he named all four of his sons Herod. (laughs) So Herod has four sons he names. It reminds me of George Foreman, you know, that former heavyweight boxing champ, who has eight sons, and he named them all George. He has eight George Foreman has eight sons. They're all named George Foreman. <laughs> I have no, I have no common comment about that. I, but, but Herod had the same notion, so he, he named all four of his sons Herod, and they had kind of secondary names, and this is Herod Antipas. And one of Herod's half-brothers, uh, they had different mothers, but the same father, Herod the Great. And so these four sons of Herod the Great all have secondary names and different mothers. And, and so Herod Antipas is uh, a half-brother to Herod the Tetrarch. And these guys were all given a fourth of their dad's kingdom. So the, the four sons now are ruling over the same areas and four parts. And Herod the Tetrarch had a daughter named Herodias. So all the boys are named Herod. And apparently all the girls are named Herodias. Uh, it's like a... It's like an episode of Jerry Springer. I'm not even sure what it means. But Herodias is 
the niece then of Herod uh, Antipas. And when Herod Antipas sees his niece kind of full grown now, she's beautiful. And so he has an eye for her and says to his half-brother, hey, can I marry your daughter, my niece? (laughs) So at one point, she's first the niece of Herod Antipas, then the sister-in-law of Herod Antipas, and now becomes the wife of Herod Antipas. Together they had a daughter, and her name was Salami, or Salome, or just Salami. I don't know how to pronounce it. We'll call her Salami. It's easier to remember. <laughs> John, the Baptist, John the Baptist was very bold. And so he, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't tolerate that kind of immorality. And so it didn't matter if he was standing in front of priests or in front of the king, Herod Antipas and his wife Herodias, he would call them out. He'd say, you, your marriage is immoral. That's wrong. That's sinful. God will judge you for that. Now, we know from the text that Herod Antipas actually was afraid of John the Baptist. He liked John the Baptist. He, he admired John the Baptist. He, just, he, he enjoyed listening to him. This, this is in the text. And so there was something compelling about John Baptist for the king, Herod Antipas. But his wife, Herodias, hated John Baptist. She loathed him. And she, and she was murderous toward him. And this would ultimately lead to his demise, his martyrdom. But in order to protect John the Baptist, Herod Antipas had him thrown into prison. He's thinking, the only way I can protect him from my wife is to put him in my prison and where he's guarded. And my wife can't get to him and kill him. So he was very bold. It kind of got him in trouble. But now he's been in prison for probably several months. And in that context, the isolation, the separation, the discouragement, in that, in that setting, he begins to doubt. Now, now follow this. This is, really, this is really powerful. John Baptist has spent his life bold, called, uh, set apart, filled with his sense of calling and his purpose in the world. I mean, he's the guy who says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I mean, he's no nonsense. He doesn't vacillate. He doesn't equivocate. He is right on point. He, he is, he's a lightning bolt, John the Baptist. And now... He wonders. He's filled with doubt. Now, here's the, the, point, the only point I want to make. If someone like John the Baptist can have moments of doubt, so can we. It can happen to us. And, of course, it does. So what can we learn? What can we learn from this story? There are three really simple and basic points that I want to give you today. If you've ever experienced doubt, or maybe you're in a season of doubt right now, These are as practical and as applicable as any points you'll ever hear in a sermon. Here's the first thing I want you to hear. And that is to be honest about your doubt. Be honest about your doubt. John Baptist was honest enough to admit his doubts. He needed help. He needed reassurance. He needed to be encouraged. And so he was humble enough to be honest about this internal conflict that he was experiencing with his faith. He wasn't afraid to be perceived as weak. Now, this is a problem in the church because for some reason, in most church culture, we develop the attitude that suggests that we should never admit that we have questions or never admit that we have doubts or never admit that we wonder about this or that or the other. 
And somehow we get the impression that if we admit that we have doubts, then people will think less of us, that we're supposed to be full-blown on top of everything all the time in every way. But that's just ridiculous that to suggest that no one has questions or doubt or confusion about their faith, this should be, the church should be the place where people actually bring their questions and bring their doubts and bring their confusion for answers. Uh, shouldn't be the place where we, we're hesitant to do that, but just the opposite. So we should be bold, of course, about the truth and unwavering about our devotion to the gospel message. And we should always remain receptive and sensitive to people who have questions or doubts. So when John's disciples asked Jesus the question, Jesus didn't respond by saying, what? Cousin John, he's got doubt about who I am? Well, I don't know what's wrong with him. I mean, he's obviously fallen from the faith and completely backslidden away from a meaningful connection with God. Who could imagine such a terrible thing happening? This isn't what Jesus responds. His response to John Baptist is loving confidence. I mean, he's calm and he's assertive. You go tell John what you have seen and heard. You, you go tell him what's going on. You reassure him. He doesn't have to look for another. I'm, I'm the guy. And this is the, same, this is the same thing that has been happening in all of these encounters through this whole series. Remember, Remember last week when the four friends lower their paralyzed friend down in front of Jesus. And Jesus says, first of all, your sins are forgiven. Brother, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees there catch him and go, aha, that you're blaspheming because only God can forgive sins. And Jesus looks at him and says, and your question is? Your confusion is? When he meets with the, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, at the end of that discourse, the woman says, well, we know that the Messiah is coming who's going to lead us into all truth, teach us all truth. And Jesus said, the guy with you, standing right in front of you right now, speaking to you, I am he, I'm the Messiah. And so, and so there is confidence in Jesus knowing who he is. And so he wants to lovingly reaffirm and reassure John of who he is. And that's exactly what we can expect from Jesus if we take our doubts to him. And so be honest about your doubt. Be honest about your doubt. Here's the second thing. It's very, it's very simple, but so important. And that is let doubt move you toward Jesus. Move you toward Jesus as opposed to away from Jesus. Now, this is, this is critically important, and if you're a discerning person, you will realize that this is, a, this is a similar point that has been made in every sermon in this series. When you wonder, when you're at the crossroads of life, when your story takes a little shift, when you're not sure what's going to happen next, the right instinct is to move toward Jesus, not away from Jesus. Now, you hear that, and you go, well, yeah, but, but that's not how many, many people live out their lives. People get hurt. People get wounded. Uh, unfair things happen to people, unjust things happen to people, and it can leave, leave a person, even a person of faith, wondering, why, God? Why have you allowed this to happen? Why this? Why me? Why now? And so anger can come up, and bitterness can come up, and the instinct in a moment like that sometimes is, I'm not sure I can continue to follow a God that I can't trust, who would allow things like this to happen to me. And so people start drifting away from God and away from their faith. I'm talking to people who've done this. 
You may not be in the room today, but there are people watching online, and this has been part of their story. And the temptation is there, isn't it? I've been tempted like that. I can tell you. I've been at the crossroads a few times in my, in my journey of faith, and I wondered, if this, is what, if this is what happens when you serve God, I'm not sure I want to do this anymore. So I, I understand the moment. And so you've got to let doubt move you toward Jesus. John went directly to Jesus with his doubts. Are you the one? Should we look for someone else? So he tells these servants of John, go tell him what you see, tell him what you've heard. And then, and then Jesus actually quotes from Isaiah. When he says, go back and tell John, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is preached to the poor. This is a direct quote from Isaiah, and Jesus knew that from one prophet to another, John Baptist would know exactly who he was quoting, and that that would encourage John. So here's the question. Here's the question that we need to ask ourselves. It's a very important question. What are you going to do when doubt grips your life? Not if doubt grips your life, but when. What are you going to do when it grips your life? Who are you going to talk to? Who are you going to go with your questions? Where are you going to get your explanations? Where are you going to go for clarification? John went directly to the source. He went to Jesus. Now, in John's case, he got the answer the same day. He found out that day the reassurance of his faith. You may not. I may not. In fact, we may have to be patient enough to wait until eternity to get some of our questions asked. But here's, here's, the, here's the confidence and hope I want to give you in this context. Someday, listen to, listen to me, someday every last single one of your questions is going to be answered. And when you hear the answer, you will go, oh, okay. The Bible says that every, that one day, someday, that every wrong that has happened in your life, in the life of people you love, in the life of people you know, in the life of every person who's ever lived, that one day every wrong ever done to another person is going to be made right. That everything crooked, everything off, everything off point, everything off purpose, everything off of the way of God's best design and intent, everything crooked, listen, is going to be made straight. The Bible promises us that one day Jesus Christ is going to rule and reign in the world, and he's going to rule with a rod of iron. And in that phrase, we also get this beautiful image that justice, in that day, justice will roll down like the waters. And that everything, everything out of place will be put back into place. Now, that's, that's encouraging. In the world, you have tribulation. In the world, you have unfairness. In the world, you have injustice. And we have lots of voices in our world right now calling for justice about this cause and that. And, and if anybody thinks that justice is going to come to everybody in this world before Jesus returns, good luck with that. But what we can know and hang on to in a hopeful way and allow our faith to reach toward is that one day everything wrong is going to be right. Everything crooked has, is going to be made straight. 
and justice is going to roll. Justice is going to be flowing like water. Justice is going to be coming down like a waterfall and, and there will be no more angst, no more pain, no more suffering, no more wrong. Praise God. Amen. And so hang on to that. Hang on to that hope because that's the promise that God makes to us. In the meantime, let your doubt move you, move you toward Jesus. Last point, very simple. When in doubt, practice stubborn faith. When in doubt, practice stubborn faith. Jesus said in our text today, verse 23, blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Doesn't fall away. So Jesus says to, to, to the servants of John, you go tell John, hang on. Hang on to your faith. Don't become a skeptic. Don't become cynical. Don't become sour. Don't become angry. Don't become bitter toward God. Sometimes life pushes you right into the corner and there is no one left to blame but God. Sometimes life just puts you there. Don't poke God in the eye. Don't turn away. Don't let doubt win. Don't let life destroy your faith. Open your arms, rather. Give him access. Let him hold you until the light of dawn breaks through in your life. Blessed is the man who stubbornly hangs on to his faith. You remember the Old Testament character Job? There's a whole book prescribed to his story. And Job was a guy who lost everything. He lost his wife. He lost his kids. He lost his fortune. He lost his health. He lost everything there is to lose except his own life. And, and Job came to a moment where people were around him. His quote friends were saying, listen, just curse God and die. And this is, this is a natural, almost an in, intuitive response to, to horrific suffering that some folks have to endure. And you just wonder, why, God, is this happening? And the, and, and the instinct almost is to say, listen, anyone who would allow this to happen to me or even cause this to happen to me is not someone I can trust and not someone I can follow. And so you just curse God, curse God and die. But here's how Job summarized this part of his life, this moment in his life when one option is to curse God, be bitter toward God, turn your back on God, run away from God and give up on your faith. When, when those options were first and foremost at the forefront of his thinking, I can imagine, at that same point, this is what Job says, and it's in the text. He says, though he slay me, yet will I serve him. He's taken everything precious to me, my family, my fortune, my health, everything meaningful to me, God has stripped away from me. The only thing I have left is I'm still breathing, and that's it. And he says, but even if God takes that, though he slay me, yet will I serve him. Someone say, stubborn faith. Stubborn faith. Are you kidding? Stubborn faith. The apostle Paul came to the end of his life. We read this in his letter to Timothy, this young protege. And, and Paul is a guy who's been through some stuff. I mean, read his resume stoned, shipwrecked, uh, starvation, beaten to within an inch of his life, thrown into prison, uh, castigated by friends and foes alike. 
I mean, he spent, he spent this last part of his adult life following Jesus and just getting pounded for it. Everywhere he turned around, he was, he was getting persecuted and, and abused and suffered for the faith. So he comes to the end of his life. What does a guy like this do? I mean, he's given up everything for the cause of Christ, to advance the kingdom of God, to plant churches across Asia Minor in the first century. Uh, the reason that you are in this room today, and I'm, and, and I'm a person who, of faith proclaiming the word of God today, is because of the work of the Apostle Paul. No question about it. And so what, what conclusion does he come to at the end of his life? You might say, well, you know, he may be a little sour. He may be a little bitter. He may be, a, you know, just a little pouty about all of his negative circumstances. But what does he do? What does he say to the young evangelist, Timothy? He said, look, I ran the race. I finished the course God laid out before me. Last phrase, I kept the faith. I kept the faith. I kept the faith. You read that and you just go, well, that's the great apostle Paul, of course. You know, he kept the faith. No, he didn't have to keep the faith. He had every reason that you have and more to abandon the faith. But what does he do? I kept the faith. So Romans 8, 18, this is his words. He wrote, I consider, hear the word consider, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will re be revealed in us. So here he, he says it again. I've, I've sorted this out. I've considered it. This is a Greek word that means to calculate or to compute, like a numerical calculation. So you reason it all out and you come up with a conclusion. Paul uses it as he's arriving at a settled conclusion. He said, I've examined this, I've scrutinized it, I've evaluated it, I've put it all in the hopper, and I'm, I've let it all sift out. And he said, this is what, this is what I've concluded. It's all going to be all right if we practice a stubborn faith. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that God is going to reveal in us. Now, here's a guy Here's a guy who knows what stubborn faith looks like. And so could I just say it again out loud? Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't let the circumstances of life keep you from God's best design and plan. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Philippians 1.6, the one who began a good work in you has not abandoned you. He's not, he's not left you. His presence is still with you. His, his, his promise to order your steps is still in play and God will finish the work. Beth and I uh, faced into two rounds, two bouts of cancer in her case. My, my wife's mother died when she was 39 years old of this disease. She had a, a maternal first cousin who died at the age of 33 of the disease a maternal aunts who have died, a maternal grandmother who died of the disease. And Beth was diagnosed the first time at 35 with this disease. And so it was very precarious. Her, her pathology was poor. Her prognosis was completely up in the air. And that was 30 years ago. And then just a few years ago, she, she developed the disease again. And so we went through the whole rigor of treatment and surgery and and so forth one more time. And I've shared with this with you before that these are the kind of moments when you wonder, 
why? Is, is this what you get when you try to do your best? And so we've understood the challenges, the confusion, the doubt. And we've spent some time in the last couple of years reminiscing about this, really evaluating it. The Apostle Paul came to this conclusion, I consider that this momentary suffering isn't worth comparing to the glory that's coming. And so when Beth and I talk about this journey that we've had, and reminiscing about this cancer, we, be, we begin to list all the ways our life is different, our marriage is different, our family is different, our ministry is different, our life in general is different. And let me just, before I make this next statement, let me just add this caveat, this qualifier, for anyone who's going through a dark time right now, and you're in touch with doubt, and you're in touch with confusion, and you don't understand why things are happening the way they are, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you're going through it. I don't know why. So I, I do understand. I said several months ago in a sermon that got a lot of response that it's possible to live with doubt and faith at the same time. It's possible to be angry with God and still hang on to your faith at the same time. And I confess that there were many months in my life in our journey when I was shaking my fist at God with one hand and hanging on to his ankle with the other. God, I, I, I don't trust you. I, I, I'm, I don't believe I can follow you like this. And with the other hand, the other part of my life, but I know I can't live without you. I can't go on without you. Where would I go? What course would I choose? If I get off of this road, what road would I get on? And where will that lead? So I, I, don't have, I don't have a choice. I have to hang on to Jesus, but I can still have my doubts at the same time. And you have to give yourself permission to do that. And so we concluded, we considered, in summary, after these hardships and this suffering and this confusion, this is what we concluded, that it could be this journey through all of the suffering and the pain and the, and the doubt is the best thing that ever happened to us. I mean, when we add up the, things, the best things that's happened to us, it gets on the list. Could be the best thing that ever happened. I know you can't. If, see, if you're going through it right now, you can't, you can't, you can't hear that. Because that's, that's not even, that's not a, that's not a possibility. But that's our story. One more illustration and I'll be done. In 1943, this is World War II, the North Atlantic, the SS Dorchester was torpedoed and was sinking. There were four chaplains on that particular ship. There was a Roman Catholic priest, a Jewish rabbi, and two Protestant ministers. One of the Protestant chaplains was a name, man named Clark Poling. He was the son of a prominent pastor in New York City at the time named Dr. Daniel Poling. And when it was discovered that there weren't enough life vests, these four chaplains gave up their vests for the younger sailors. 
The four chaplains were last seen by the men in rafts and vests in the open water holding on to each other as they watched uh, this ship go down. All four of these men perished. Dr. Daniel Poling, the father of this chaplain, was devastated. He confessed that his faith was completely rocked. He found it difficult to pray or consider the scriptures or lead worship. He said the only thing that sustained him for months was going to a window in his home facing east and watching the sun rise every morning. He said as the sun would rise, he would say, I believe. I believe. I believe. He said he did that until the dawn began to break into his own heart and his doubt and confusion and his pain began to be healed. So if you have doubts, be honest about that. Be real about it. If you have doubts, take it to the source. Take it to Jesus. Don't lean away from him in your moments of greatest despair. Lean in. Lean toward Jesus. That's what John Baptist did and worked out for him. And finally, hang on no matter what, and practice a stubborn faith. Practice a stubborn faith. For he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you today for this amazing story, this life of John Baptist. Lord, we we so identify with him in this state of doubt and wonderment. We pray, O God, that your grace would find us today right where we are. Lord, I know that I'm speaking to numbers of people who are struggling, whose circumstances are so challenging, and doubt is real in their mind and heart. So I pray, oh God, that you would meet us right at the point of our story. We're reminded that no one cares more about our story than you do, and no one has the power to change it like you do. And so we confess, Lord, honestly, we need to be encouraged. We need to be inspired. We need need our hope restored. So help us. We, we, We bring our burden and our anxiety and our cares to you. And then, Lord, we commit ourselves this day that no matter what else happens, I'm going to stubbornly believe. Just going to, I'm just going to believe. I believe. I believe. Because where else do we have to go? To whom would we, to whom would we run? So we run to you and we hang on. I wonder if I'm also speaking to someone today who not only is experiencing doubt today, but this has been your life. You would say, I've lived my whole life doubting, doubting the existence of God or doubting the plan of God. The message of Jesus Christ, this story of his life and his death, sacrificial death, and on the third day rising from the dead, this has just been hard for me to believe. But somehow today I feel a spark of faith. I feel hope today. I, for the first time I'm considering maybe, 
maybe this is true. Maybe, maybe God did send his son on a rescue mission so that I could find hope and life and forgiveness. Friend, could I just say, if you have just that spark of faith today, that's enough. That's it. That's what you need. So exercise it today. Simply pray, God, I'm sorry for the things I've done wrong. I'm sorry for living my life in such doubt. And today I want to believe. So extend your grace to me. Forgive me my sins. Help me to reconnect with the God who made me and establish my life with hope that you who began a good work in me will be faithful to complete it. Thanks for hearing my prayer. Thanks for hearing us today, O oh God, and for meeting us at the point of our need. In Jesus' name we pray. And all the people said, amen, amen. Would you stand with us?